Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. From the flashes of grand jury activity that come our way, illuminating small sections of a vast and still largely unknown tableau, we now know that Jack Smith's investigation not only has penetrated to Donald Trump's inner circle, it's traced it all around. The latest insider whom we learned testified was son-in-law and general concierge Jared Kushner. He joins Mark Meadows, Rudy Giuliani, Pat Cipollone, Hope Hicks, Walt Nalta, and other White House mainstays who have raised their right hands and answered questions under penalty of perjury. In the documents case that Smith already has brought against Trump, the former president came out of the box with an all-in delay strategy, countering Smith's proposed schedule for a December trial with a proposal that Judge Eileen Cannon take the case off calendar altogether. Framing an early test for the judge who was roundly lambasted for her lawless pro-Trump intervention at an earlier stage of the case. At this point, the lines for Smith, Trump, and the country are clearly drawn. Trump has no hope of prevailing at trial, and his only escape hatch is a delay long enough for him or another Republican to win the 2024 election and shut the prosecution and broader investigations down. Put another way, the country is quickly approaching a crossroads at which one side leads to restoration of the rule of law and the other to something like its demise. And eight years since Trump's trip down the escalator inaugurated the Trump era, it feels foolhardy to think that the unthinkable couldn't happen. That's particularly the case when the Republicans in Congress have been captured by a Trumpian crowd of crazies who are completely focused on petty culture wars. This past week, the Republicans trained their fire on holding up military funding and promotions on the basis of opposition to the Pentagon's abortion policy and to excoriating Trump-appointed FBI Director Chris Wray as part of their fictitious weaponization of government narrative. To size up the swirling legal and political currents and cross-currents, we welcome an outstanding group of experts in the ways of Washington, D.C., all, I'm pleased to say, pretty regular guests of Talking Feds. And they are Norm Eisen, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institute, the founder and chair of the State's United Democracy Center, and a legal analyst for CNN. Norm served as special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee for the first impeachment of President Trump, as well as United States Ambassador to the Czech Republic under President Obama. He also worked in the White House as special assistant to the president for ethics and government reform from 2009 to 2011. He's the author of three books, most recently, a Case for the American People, United States versus Donald J. Trump. Norm, thank you as always for joining Talking Feds. Thanks, Harry. Always great to be with you and nothing like being on Talking Feds. Bill Crystal, the editor-at-large at The Bulwark and founder and director of Defending Democracy Together. He famously founded the Weekly Standard in 1995 and edited that influential magazine for over two decades. 
He also served in senior positions in the Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations, and he is the host of the terrific video series and podcast, Conversations with Bill Crystal. Thank you for joining this conversation, Bill Crystal. My pleasure. <laughs> and Congressman Ted Lieu, who represents California's 33rd Congressional District in the United States House of Representatives, where he is serving his fifth term. He currently sits on the House Judiciary Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Ted is a former active duty officer in the U.S. Air Force and served in the Reserves, retiring in 2021 with the rank of Colonel. Congressman, thank you for your service, and thank you, as always, for returning to Talking Feds. Honored to be here. So another very active week for Special Counsel Jack Smith, even as the Mar-a-Lago case hits perhaps its first big inflection point, which we'll talk about in a minute. We learn daily about major progress Smith has made in building other prosecutions around the post-election period. So now that we know Jared Kushner has testified, Smith has covered close to all of the inner circle, personal and professional. So let me ask a basic question and get, get your view, Norm, as a lawyer and someone who's followed it. Is it totally clear, we hear all the names, is it totally clear that Trump is a target? As far as we know, Trump has not received the formal notice that he is a target in the form of a target letter. But I don't think there can be any doubt when you look at all of the evidence, when you apply the law to the facts, when you filter all of that through the possible defenses, everything that we did in our 250-page-plus model pros memo, there can be no doubt that Trump is a target. You don't litigate and get the testimony of the former vice president unless the president is a target. You don't bother with litigating with the former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. They're reportedly negotiating immunity with Mike Roman, who was in charge of running the false elector scheme. They're giving immunity to false electors, this massive Herculean effort. None of that happens unless you're very seriously contemplating charging Trump. Yeah, I just got to say, I, I agree. And plus all the snippets we learn of what they're asking, the people who are put in are asked again and again, what did Trump think? What did he say? Right. What was his mood? So I think coming at him like a freight train is right. Let me follow up with you, Norm, because you mentioned your memo. And to all the listeners, um, Norm and, and colleagues have put together really a comprehensive and in many ways brilliant memo of what could come on the order of the sort of memo prosecutors prepare for their supervisors. Lots of stuff in there, but maybe the most controversial, as you recognize, you don't necessarily bottom line, is whether to expect charges against Trump for the 1-6 melee itself. You know, what's the case for bringing it? Well, Harry, you don't mind if I just very briefly lay out the simple case that lies within the extraordinarily complex pattern of events, because it culminates in that Insurrection Act charge that you're asking about. So in our press memo, there was no need to do another January 6th committee report. The January 6th uh, committee did a brilliant job of that. The question we asked ourselves is what does Smith do with this seven 
chapters of the January 6th committee analysis. And we think that it actually lends itself to a very simple three-act drama that you could persuade a jury of. And it ends with the insurrection. Act one, Trump tried everything under the sun. Don't even try to explain it to the jury. Don't, they don't have to keep track of it all. Don't charge it all. Out of the chaos of the post-election, him not wanting to leave the White House even though he lost, pushing DOJ, pushing state legislatures, state officials, phony lawsuits. At the end of it all, after Brad Raffensperger slammed the door in his face at the beginning of January, he was left with one thing in his hand, a bunch of counterfeit electoral certificates as phony as $3 bills. Act two, he pivots over to Mike Pence. He tries to use those bogus documents to pressure Pence, principally on January 4th through the morning of the 4th, the morning through the 6th, to break the law, to violate the law. Pence refuses to do it, tells him on the morning of January 6th, Act 3, Trump, with nothing left to do, unleashes the mob on Congress. That's where the Insurrection Act charge comes in. And on this theme of simplicity, there's a simple way to do even that. Don't try to tell these complicated stories of the mob. We've had hundreds and hundreds of prosecutions. You've had this seditious conspiracy. It takes weeks, and juries haven't always bought it. The story of the Insurrection Act violation, 18 U.S.C. 2383, the story is one of Trump at 2.24 p.m. when he knew the violent mob was already in action, sicking them with his tweet on his vice president, and then failing for 187 minutes to perform his legal duty, the most sacred legal duty in America, that of a president to protect our nation and our government. So you have a simple case even there, and simplicity is the watchword. And that was, sometimes you got to write 250 pages to come up with a simple theory. (laughs) To get simple. If I had more time, I'd have written shorter. I'll just make the quick counterpoint. Simplicity is the watchword. And there would be no doubt, and Smith is aware of it, that he'd be walking into potentially gnarly legal claims, delays, and the like. And the question is, does he want to do something to avoid that in the first instance? Or, but, but it's related to, does he feel he is only sort of one bite at the apple? So, Congressman or, or Bill, you know, think about Watergate, all the president's men, Nixon, didn't get prosecuted, but all the president's men did in an impressive list. Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, Colson, etc. If many go down here, but not Trump, is that adequate to restore the rule of law? Or does the restoration really require that Trump himself be prosecuted for the post-election period? I believe the criminal process should be applied the same to any defendant, whether they are a former president or not. So Donald Trump is entitled to the presumption of innocence in a court of criminal law. The prosecution is going to have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury that Donald Trump committed the crimes for which the grand jury has indicted him for. And we'll see what the evidence shows. And without being on the jury, I think it's really hard in an abstract to be able to conclude one way or the other. Is that right? I mean, let's say the department, as presumably Gerald Ford did, concludes 
to end our national nightmare or whatever, we they won't actually have U.S. versus Trump other than the Mar-a-Lago case. Is that really just an inadequate way to end this whole chapter, do you think? That's different because you're, in fact, then treating a defendant differently uh, based on the fact that defendants are foreign president. So I think the prosecution should do the normal process. That decision should be left up to President of the United States, who does have the power to grant pardons or clemency. No, I think that's a good distinction to make. It's not really up to Jack Smith to make that decision in a sense. If that is a presidential level decision. And obviously, Gerald Ford made that decision. On the one hand, it seems kind of crazy to prosecute all the lieutenants and not the captain of the conspiracy. And, and so I'm inclined to think that if there is a case there, which there seems to be, and if there was an attempt to overturn the election and laws were broken in that attempt, which seems to be the case, of course, Donald Trump was at the center of that and was the architect of that, really. Yeah. So I, on the one hand, it seems crazy to prosecute these other people and not Trump. On the other hand, I will say this. Even if that ends up being the outcome, either in terms of who's prosecuted or who's convicted or whether there's a pardon or something, I don't think it's nothing. I mean, I came to Washington in 85, so 10 years after, 11 years after Watergate, and to the White House in, in 89. It was a big deal as a staffer, senior staffer, and both in, a, in the Education Department and in the White House, it was in our memory, in our consciousness, that Haldeman and Ehrlichman and Mitchell and right. people like that had not only had to leave office in disgrace, but had been prosecuted and convicted and done time in, in many cases. And it was sort of like, geez, you know, if you really just break the law, if you abuse your position as a government official, if you try to use, you know, the F I was not in a position to use the FBI when I was chief of staff of the education <laughs> department, but if one does something like that, there's a real price to be paid. In that respect, I think the fact that, what is it, two, two and a half years have gone by, yeah. since all these people really did abuse their official authority and no one's paid much of a price, is a problem. It's a problem. They're going on. They're, some of them are doing very well in Trump world financially. That's their right. It's a free country. It was healthy, I think, that one can dispute the pardon of Nixon, whether that was wise, but it was healthy that the criminal process worked there. And I think it was a healthy reminder to a lot of us who came to Washington later. It didn't prevent there being some scandals. And I do think we're running the risk the other way now of making it seem that you could pretty much do what you want in government. And, you know, either you'll get pardoned by Trump, as so many people did on his way out, or you can sort of muddy the water so much, or your, your, your boss, the former president, can muddy the water so much that you're never really going to get prosecuted. I agree with Bill. I just want to highlight how important and what a big deal it was that President Trump was indicted because that's what the system can do. And it shows that our institutions are working. What individual juries will do is really something that's not within the control of any prosecutor at any time. Juries will do whatever they're going to do. But the fact that the system indicted the former president, I think, is a big deal because it tells future former presidents that if they violate the law, they can also be indicted. And that's just a very, very big deal. Yeah, look, I think it's right that the department has crossed two Rubicons here, both the indictment of a former president and then on the other side, they've really insisted, been adamant on treating with utmost seriousness, January 6th, and they've convicted people for a, a difficult crime, but they've gone all the way on it, and even, even now are challenging the sentences on the insurrection. But just to Bill's point, I, look, I agree, but it's also true that Watergate, as I remember it, was, even leaving the law aside, sort of a searing political and cultural 
moment. Uh, one of the more jarring aspects of what Trump has promised as he reelected is the complete raising of the Watergate sort of norms that now seem almost constitutional. But I think, I don't know if I'd call it ironic, but in order to insulate the uh, presidency and the department from charges of politicization, they have put Jack Smith in place. And Smith is, just as the congressman is saying, pursuing the normal process that you would with any other person. If the facts and law so dictate we're going to go for it, Garland has made clear he's going to accept the recommendation. Biden has made clear he's going to be hands off. And all that is to the good in a way. But what it has basically committed us as a country to is not having the kind of overlay analysis that Ford, for example, you know, undertook. The prosecuting of the people who stormed the Capitol, actually, there's a certain amount of grumbling, and I sort of share that sentiment a little. How come they're, I mean, it's fine to prosecute them, but what about all the people who incited them to do it and helped organize them to do it and so forth and totally irresponsibly let them, you know, watch them do it from the Oval Office? But I'm, I'm thinking also of the Roger Stone, Meadows, you know, et cetera, level of people, the lawyers who gave them a rationale for doing it. I think, incidentally, some of the members of the Congress, Ted Cruz and people like that, haven't been held nearly accountable enough for the fact that it wouldn't have happened if they didn't think it was possible that they could overturn the election. And they thought it was possible that they could overturn the election, but it's a bunch of not just members of the House, but senators said in the days before, somewhat surprisingly, remember when Cruz and all these stepped up around yeah. January 1st, that, you know what, we're going to take it to the floor. And suddenly they thought, okay, it's a real thing. Anyway, that's a long way of saying, on the one hand, all those people should be held accountable one way or the other, politically or legally. But I do think those prosecutions of all the actual people who stormed the Capitol has had an effect. I do think we've been surprised in a, in a good way by the lack of violence in some respects in subsequently, it's, even though Trump has kind of called for it in a, in, a, in a sort of, his usual, slightly clever way, you know, hard to pin down way when he was indicted in New York and then and then and other times, there have been close elections and Carrie Lake and all that. And I wonder if people just look at that and they think, you know what, it turns out that I don't like what's happened and this guy's telling me to go do something, but I don't know, this guy who's sort of, responded three years ago to this call, two and a half years ago to this call to do something, he's in jail for three or four years. I mean, it does feel like the air is maybe leaked out of the tires on that kind of response. Let's move over or down, you could say, to Mar-a-Lago. So I think we're at the really critical juncture point and test of not just the impartiality, but the basic competence of Judge Cannon. So the DOJ came in with a December trial date suggestion, and Trump responded by saying, take the case off the calendar, you know, all together. It's kind of a cheeky move saying, don't even set a date. Did it surprise you? And how do you sort of construe what it shows about where Trump is going? I think Trump's all in on a strategy of delay. Probably will be the Republican nominee for president. He might win the presidency. He will presumably pardon himself or claim he can and be hard to maybe contest that in court, or or he might win in court on that. And in any case, it buys him a long time. And and also, he doesn't want it to come to trial. I think that an actual trial on the documents would be damaging to him. You see actual testimony. So already damaging somewhat, I think, just because the facts are so clear. And what if you actually had testimony of you know people saying what we know, we gather they said from the indictment. 
So he just wants to put that off. And I think once you get into the election season, either the primaries or the general election, it's probably easier to make the case that, oh, it's inappropriate to do this during the election season. So I think he's behaving hes behaving rationally from his point of view, from the point of view of his own self-interest. And for all that people can ridicule, and I gather from you, you lawyers with some justice, some of the things his legal team has done and said and the arguments they've made and all, objectively, two and a half years after January 6th and a year almost now after the raid on Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump is a free man. Most of his close associates are free men and women, and he's leading the Republican race to the presidency. So I have a little bit of the feeling like, I don't know, he's they're all idiots and they're all, you know, buffoons and what a clown show, except it seems to me like they're doing pretty well, needless to say. With, <laughs> I don't say that with any happiness, but so I think it's delay, delay, delay. There's no such thing in a law as a defense of being a candidate for office. Right. And I think if... Judge Cannon hadn't been uh, so aggressive in the first case and really been reversed that harshly by the 11th Circuit. She might take this argument a little more seriously, but I think she's probably going to try to be as fair as she can because she was already shut down once. And I think to rehabilitate her judicial reputation and career, I don't think she wants to be seen as a shill. For Donald Trump. And doesn't that mean, Norm, that she's got to set a date? I agree. She's already got two strikes against her, Harry. And as you know, I've written about the 11th Circuit jurisprudence on recusing district court judges when there's a pattern of outlandish uh, decisions in favor of a defendant. There's no set rule in the 11th Circuit on what constitutes a pattern, but I think she would be vulnerable if she completely removed the schedule, probably it would have to go up to the 11th Circuit on mandamus if DOJ moved to recuse her. That most likely is not directly appealable. I think the greater risk is that she bleeds Jack Smith by a thousand cuts. She says, well, government has asked for December. Let's meet first week in January and see where we are. And then she meets in January and oh, the discovery. I'd like you to brief this. Here's a briefing yeah. schedule on this. Yeah. So we'll see what she does. But I, I thought the way she handled the special master was so patently outrageous. There were less insane avenues there, too. And yet she took the path of maximum crazy. So uh, we'll just have to see what she does. And what do you guys think? I mean, she surely did. We're totally focused on it. It's outrageous for her lawyers. Is the country paying any attention? Is there genuine public pressure on her? There was a recent poll that showed the overwhelming majority of Americans did support having a trial prior to the election. I mean, what an extraordinary moment we're at, right? The American people have a strong opinion on when a trial is your... your Cheshire cat smile there, Bill. You've often, I think, when we've spoken with lawyers, thought like, you know, the legal vantage point might be a little myopic. Do you think so here? Or is this, yeah, is there genuine focus? I mean, I'm sure the legal vantage point is correct legally, but I don't know, Judge Cannon, I don't know what her incentives are, what her ambitions are. Does she, if she wants to be a highly respected district court judge who maybe moves up to the appellate court in 15 years with bipartisan support, <laughs> she will try to overcome what she did before. Yeah. If she wants to be 
Donald Trump's White House counsel in 2020-25. I'm making this up, but I mean, why not? Right. And then turn that into a very profitable career, assuming that Trump's president, there'll be a heck of a lot of people who want access to the Trump White House by 2026. That's not out of the question. If she wants to just be a favorite of Trumpists while being a district court judge and maybe can get up to the appellate court with the Republican Senate, maybe not, but maybe she just enjoys this for five, 10 years and then does other, other things in a Trumpy America. I mean, I just think we tend, we who are not pro-Trump and we who believe strongly in a kind of pretty bipartisan, old-fashioned rule of law and, and a kind of respectability matters. And I just don't know how strong that is for her. I think it, it could be somewhat strong. It's not like that's nothing. But I worry that the incentives are not all on one side on all this. An awful lot of people who behave pretty badly and pretty awfully over the last four, five, six years are making very good livings today and don't seem to have, be having crises of conscience. And doubled down. Yeah, she may be at the same table as, as Trump, really, hoping for the same roll of the dice if she's you know, thinking of the, of the way ahead. What if Trump loses? So she's still a district court judge. She probably won't right. get impeached. It's not like there's not going to be another Republican primary in 2020 or Republican governor of Florida who could make her state attorney general or Republican primary in 28 and then she's back in play. I mean, I just think we tend to sort of assume a reversion to normalcy, which unfortunately may not happen as quickly or as unambiguously as one would hope. As usual, you're scaring me very well, <laughs> but, it, but I don't see what, you know, any flaw in the logic. Well, let me stay on this line then in a bigger question. Look, we've been assuming a conviction at trial before the election matters hugely. And that's, we all understand, that's the most that's going to happen. The appeals process will never run its course. That means if Trump's gambit run is successful, it, he won't even have to pardon himself. The case won't be final. He just tells the department to stand down. So we see this as huge stakes. The devil's advocate argument would be something like, Look, everyone already knows he's guilty. The more he's indicted and Felony Willis is reading in the next two or three weeks a behemoth case uh, featuring him. He seems to still get support. How much does it matter for the country that there is a trial that goes to the end before November 2024? Electorally, I can tell you that Joe Biden will absolutely win if the referendum is, does Donald Trump go to prison or not? Um, I can tell you that if Judge Ken delays this trial after the election, you're going to have a massive turnout of Democrats and independents on that issue. Donald Trump is the gift that keeps on giving. So it's a risk. It's a very high risk gamble because if we're wrong, not that it's in the hands of the four of us, but if we're wrong, Trump is on the ballot and is successful for whatever crazy reason. And crazy things do happen in politics. A lightning bolt named Jim Comey struck twice on Hillary Clinton in the same spot. I'm not saying it wouldn't be terrible. I think we all agree that I'm but I am putting up for discussion the really, I think, very strong presumption that everyone has that it would be a disaster. It's very important for the country that a, that a trial occur before November. I'm saying that it's important because it is another way of hedging that risk. When Donald Trump is the presumptive Republican nominee, prosecutors should not leave it to posterity was he a convicted democracy felon or not? God bless Alvin Bragg 
for getting his act together better late than never. That's a very good case, not the topic of this visit, but I, I think that he actually has a winning case there. And Jack Smith moved briskly on Mar-a-Lago. He's got to get off the stick on the federal election interference crimes precisely to hedge the risk with Donald Trump likely on the ballot. And Fonnie Willis also. Fonnie Willis also. I mean, if there's a trial, it will presumably be dramatic. I mean, a little more dramatic than even the January 6th committee, which was you know, very well done and very important, I think. But uh, those were not witnesses testifying live under examination and cross-examination. So, and if stuff comes out, if we therefore get confirmation that Trump was as recklessly irresponsible with the classified documents as knowingly seeking to obstruct justice, et cetera, et cetera, as it seems, that could affect public opinion some. I actually think in a funny way, the trial could be as important as the verdict. I mean, the verdict itself... I mean, A, it might not be guilty. It could be a hung jury, presumably, and uh, it just takes one, right? And secondly, it'll be on appeal anyway, and Trump will just say it's ridiculous and uh, it's on appeal. It's never going to stand up. So, I mean, the bad news is we had the January 6th hearings. They were convincing to me, and Trump is now the f- easy front runner for the Republican nomination and, you know, kind of running pretty close to Biden in the general election polls. You just don't know, right? It's sort of laid a predicate maybe for other stuff to happen and eventually the proverbial straw breaks the proverbial camel's back. I've always, people always use that metaphor. I've used it a million times. I don't know if it has it ever happened. Is the straw really ever break the camel's back? <laughs> these, camels, these camels carry a lot of straw, you know? And it gets me a little worried when people say, that straw is going to break the camel's back. It's like, it's maybe not the best metaphor for us. But anyway. Yeah, I thought that since Access Hollywood, and there's, it carries a lot more straw, right? I did a conversation with Red Ayers, the Republican pollster, and, you know, at some point he just said, look, these are such uncharted waters. I mean, how do we know what, what, when and if public opinion really reacts to one thing rather than another? It's like the third indictment, the particulars of a trial as opposed to a mere congressional hearing. But I, I think it would be dramatic, both the documents and especially January 6th, don't you think? I mean, an actual trial with a former vice president of the United States, former chief of staff to the president of the United States, former attorney general to the president of the United States, all of whom worked for him and were loyal to him and supported him, obviously, in 2020, testifying. That's a little different from depositions and third-party accounts. And so that, I think, would be very big if it, if it happened in time. That's my view as well. You know, raising the right hand and saying stuff, it'll be riveting. The only thing that gives me pause is just that that has pretty much always been, you know, de Tocqueville, an accepted way in which social disputes are settled. And everything in the last few years seems so up for grabs. If the big lie can perpetuate, can a jury be disregarded? But Smith at least, and you, you're, you're right to bring up also Fonnie Willis and Alvin Bragg, but it'll just be a juggernaut of a trial, right? Just boom, 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 boom. And by the way, Trump probably can't testify in the defense. So that's my view, but I, you know, I think it's worth discussing because we remain in such a bizarre norm-busting, not you normizing, uh, period. Okay, shall we move down the street to the Republican uh, Congress? The latest is social conservatives in the House holding the defense bill hostage over will the army reimburse abortion services for members in states that prohibit it? Staying with that very dispute, I mean, it does seem like the stance that the Republicans are adopting, 20 or so 
members on the extreme right gives the White House a pretty powerful rhetorical position. You're harming military readiness, etc. Does it seem like they're going down a road that they're going to have to bail on? Or is there real headway they, they can make? No way the U.S. Senate puts in those radical NDA provisions. I previously served on active duty in the U.S. military, and it's just very clear that you're going to be assigned at the end of the day based on the needs of the military. And so if you're, let's say, a young enlisted member of the U.S. military and uh, you're a female and you get assigned to a red state such as Texas and you can't get an abortion, it's not just a matter of you know whether or not you get reimbursed. It's can they even let you do it because you don't have enough leave time and you don't have the resources to be able to fly to another state and get an abortion. So this is going to decimate recruiting. It's going to make it very hard, I think, to recruit young men and women across America if they know that they're going to face this problem potentially in the military. Though people thought two days ago that McCarthy would lose moderate Republicans who would have to bail on the actual bill, and they did pass it through the House, and uh, the Senate won't, won't accept it. Uh, Ted's obviously right about that. The president wouldn't sign it. And I assume they'll eventually have to pass with bipartisan support a more reasonable bill, like the one that was supported 58 to 1, if I'm not mistaken, in the House Armed Services Committee. I mean, that is kind of what's amazing. We're well, so used to partisan legislation and party line votes and people, especially on the right, a little bit on the other parties in the Democrats too, though, but especially on the Republican side, putting in these kind of extreme things and then everyone just gets in line and does it. We had the traditional bipartisan markup of the NDAA and House Armed Services. Right? It comes out 58 to 1. They could have let that one go, right? They could have picked each of these fights on appropriations bills over the next six weeks. And they were going to, in fact. And they will again, <laughs> incidentally, when NDA isn't yet law or if it gets changed and, and they have to accept a Senate version. So they, there was no need to do it on this piece of legislation, which traditionally has been almost uniquely in this day and age, you know, bipartisan legislation. And which, again, literally had 25, or I don't know what the distribution on the committee must be, but more than 25, 31, 32 Republican votes on the House Armed Services. And they chose to do it on this. For me, it, the, it does show the radicalism of the Republican caucus. Will they pay a price for it? Maybe. Senator Tuberville is holding up 250 military promotions in the Senate. And honestly, and I've expressed my opinion on this a few times, I don't know, is he pay, are they paying a price? The fact that his colleagues aren't, leaning on him to not do this. Senator Schumer's got other things to do. I know it's hard with the calendar, blah, blah, blah. You can't change the rule. Maybe we could, but doesn't want to change the rules with all these individual senators being able to put holds on it. But it's a little nuts. I mean, senators who I very much respect, Tammy Duckworth gave a fantastic speech the other day on this. Uh, said, this is hurting our national security. And then a friend of mine said to me, well, if it's hurting national security so badly, which I think it probably really is, and Ted would, could talk much more about this than I can, shouldn't they do something? I mean, who controls the Senate? You know, it's not like the House. The Democrats control the Senate. Maybe Chuck Schumer should keep them in this weekend. You know, it's kind of hot here in Washington, but they could survive, you know, and, and do what they have to do to come on down to the Marine Corps and start confirming all the others and make Mitch McConnell and all the Republicans vote on this and make Tuberville stand alone and look ridiculous. And so I, I kind of feel like on the one hand, it's, it should hurt them, but there hasn't been quite the impetus to make this the radicalism of the Republicans in the Senate and the House. They haven't been held accountable politically as much as they should be. So I don't know if it's true that they haven't been held to account politically, because if you look at every single election since the horrible Dobbs decision, Republicans have underperformed and Democrats have overperformed. 
Democrats flipped a mayoral seat in Jacksonville, Florida. That's a very conservative city. Someone equated it to as if a Republican had won the San Francisco mayorship. We also flipped the mayor's office in Colorado Springs. And in April, in a swing state of Wisconsin, the liberal justice crushed the conservative justice on one issue, abortion. And so you have Republicans continue to highlight this issue. And so I think this is going to hurt the moderates at the ballot box next November. What does all this suggest about the next budget crisis point, which I think is September 30th? 21 conservatives are, are starting to rattle sabers about spending cuts. They're really the same thing as before. Are we in for another showdown, do you think? What we know is that the U.S. Senate is going to put out an appropriations package that is in line with the deal that Kevin McCarthy and President Biden agreed to. House Democrats are going to vote for the same thing. What you have is radical Republican extremists who now want to back out of the deal that their own speaker negotiated, and they're not going to be able to sustain that. Yeah, I think that's a very accurate description of what they're trying to do and whether McCarthy can stand up to them as he did in the actual deal that prevented a default and and pass ultimately a CR or appropriation or a budget consistent with the deal with what, three to one Democrats voting for and two to one Republicans or whatever that was in the House, or something like that. I mean, the degree to which he seems to be willing to succumb to pressure from the right is a little startling. It's very important that we're having this discussion, that we focus the issue, because having myself lived through a government shutdown when I was in the Obama administration, it was during my ambassadorial service. I could do the bare minimum. I was on the approved skeleton staff, but I I wasn't allowed to. The Kerry family were, were from the Czech Republic. They came to visit. I couldn't accompany them. To the ancestral... uh, You had to make the hors d'oeuvres yourself. Yeah, it's tough. It's a very tough life. It's a balance. What breaks these log jams is the public outrage and the constituencies like business and the Chamber of Commerce, the traditional constituencies, clearly the ones that McCarthy listened to in cutting the deal last time. So I think we need to be building up so that McCarthy and his extreme right wing are to blame for this. There's a deal that's in place that they seem to be limbering up. We know the Freedom Caucus would like McCarthy to go back on that. And we need to put the infrastructure in place now so that when the brinksmanship comes and the potential government shutdown later in the year, that it's very clear who's to blame. That wasn't so clear in this last go round, even though I thought that was asymmetrical blame. The American people did not side with Biden to quite the same extent as they did Obama when we had the prior fight. So there's going to be a battle of public opinion. We need to put those building blocks in place starting now. And now a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. Hello, I'm Sandra Park, a senior attorney with the ACLU Women's Rights Project. At the ACLU, we believe everyone deserves equal access to safe and stable housing. Fair housing is a civil rights issue because it's fundamental to creating a more just society. 
Where we live is not just an address. It's central to all of life's opportunities, what services, healthcare, jobs, schools, and transportation we can access, and where we can build community with our families. The ACLU is working to reduce mass evictions and barriers to housing opportunities that disproportionately impact Black women renters and their families and restore important housing protections to expand equal access to housing opportunities for everyone. To learn more about our efforts to ensure everyone has equal access to safe and stable housing, visit aclu.org. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we stir up a discussion around cocktails. Make your own or buy them ready to drink. There's no question that mixing a delicious cocktail is truly an art form. Precise measurements and proportions, creative substitutions, the presentation itself, and even the speed of delivery are all factors that earn great mixologists the reputations they deserve. But for people who may not stock things like triple sec and bitters, a ready-to-drink cocktail that's pre-measured and mixed just might be worth pulling off the shelf. Ready-to-drink cocktails don't necessarily give you the satisfaction of creating a drink from scratch, but they do offer up undeniable convenience, removing the complexity of recipes, the burden of acquiring ingredients, and the time it takes to measure, pour, mix, crush, stir, and of course, repeat. Plus, you still have the ability to customize your drink, adding a splash of this or that, here or there, to your liking. So, whether you're into customization or convenience, ready-to-drink cocktails give you a little bit of both. Now, who says you can't have your cocktail and drink it too? So what's better, customization or convenience? Probably depends on the situation. It can be fun crafting your own cocktail. But when time is short, ready-to-drink cocktail sure does hit the spot. Either way, you can grab all the ingredients you need for a great craft cocktail or get your ready-to-go favorite at Total Wine & More. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, one more quick moment from the, you know, the most recent sort of follies. FBI Director Chris Wray having to go through the paddle wheel at the House Oversight Committee. And Congressman, you had a moment in that hearing that's been widely shared. I just wanted to ask you about it and ask, what's your role? What do you and your colleagues try to do? Or is there anything that you can do to combat this whole weaponization of government narrative that the Republicans are so eager to, to apply? The one of our roles is simply to get basic facts out to the American people, and then the people can make their own judgments. And the second is to really stop MAGA Republicans from trying to rewrite history. They want to you know, expunge uh, the impeachments. They want to pretend January 6th never happened. Uh, they want to pretend a lot of these uh, Trump associates were never convicted. And we're just going to keep reminding American people that, yes, those things happen. Believe your eyes and ears and your own memories. All right. Bill, this kind of, I mean, a sort of a closeout here. You've, you face different versions of this question a lot. But, you know, you're, I'd say, one generation removed from the GOP of Reagan and Bush the Elder. 
What's your sense? Is it all Trump? How did the party shift from, you know, meat and potatoes, conservative issues like defense to this total fixation on the culture war and the political grandstanding? And is there a way out? There's a way out, but it's not immediate and it's going to take a while and may not end up quite where you were before. But I think it is mostly Trump. I mean, if you looked at the Republican Party, whatever its problems, I mean, the Tea Party, and there was radicalization earlier and certainly polarization earlier. And the government shutdown was irresponsible back in the Obama years. But having said that, a Romney, Ryan, Boehner, McConnell Republican Party sure feels different from the today's Republican Party. And I don't think you, we saw much of the kind of thing we saw this week on the House floor. Whatever compromises they felt they had to make on the right. And once again, I think to just... Just two days ago, wasn't it? All these articles, the House Republicans, the moderate Republicans in the House, the ones who were in Biden districts, like there are 18 of them, they're going to have a tough time going along with this. They're going to not let Boehner, uh, Boehner shows my age, <laughs> McCarthy, <laughs> McCarthy get away with this. They all voted for it. I mean, literally all of them. But the four no Republican no votes, if I'm not mistaken, were from extremists who don't, were against like having an NDAA, you know, and against having a defense budget. They weren't from moderate Republicans or Biden district Republicans. Now, maybe they'll pay a price. And um, Ted's right. There's certainly been some elections that Democrats have done well in. And some of the extremism has proven unpopular. You do have to call it out as unpop in a way, though. And it's interesting to see. There'll be a little market test here over the next six weeks. They'll all go home in August. They'll talk to the voters. The more of the Biden district Republicans, the moderate Republicans, the blue district Republicans, the purple district Republicans come back and say, Ugh, we can't do that again. We, you need to give us a, a, a vote that's not an ex, for an extremist defense bill or not for a government shutdown. Or do they come back feeling, you know what, our voters, the voters weren't paying much attention. The people I heard from in my town halls, they could say, were actually the Republicans who said, good, you know, you got to be tough with these Democrats, you know, these radical leftists that are like Ted Lieu and stuff. So, I mean, we don't know, you know, but I, I think it will be, we'll know more in mid-September when we see if all the push comes from the right, if there's no pushback from the so-called moderate Republicans in the House. Let me tell you why it feels like deja vu all over again. So during their debt ceiling crisis earlier this year, you had Kevin McCarthy, under pressure from the extreme right wing, pass a bill that was really radical, 22% cuts to veterans, massive deep cuts, just so he can get to negotiating table with President Biden. And then they come back with a negotiated agreement that more Democrats voted for than Republicans did. I think you're going to see the same thing happen here. They pass a radical NDAA just so they can get to the conference table. And what's going to end up coming back is a pretty normal NDAA that many Democrats and Republicans are going to vote for. And then once again, the MAGA Republicans are going to be really upset and yell and scream and try to take down McCarthy again. I think that's what you're going to see, just a repeat of what had happened earlier this year. And you think that happens also on the appropriations by September 30th on the CR or the final keeping the government open type bill? Just performative radicalism, but then they end up with a deal? Absolutely. Now, I don't think it's performative for the extreme MAGA right-wing Republicans. I think they actually believe it. But what ends up happening is nobody else believes what they do, and then McCarthy then has to pass a bill with Democratic support, and then the extreme right wing gets even more upset. The broader analysis sort of brings us back to where we started, to the extent it really is Trump-driven. It seems like there's a lot of pressure on the legal system now, and 
All eyes, at least tomorrow, on uh, Judge Eileen Cannon. We have just a couple minutes for our final feature of Talking Five, where we take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. Here's a kind of Hollywood tinge question. The actors have now joined the Writers Guild in their strike, and it seems it may go on for a while. What will you turn to for entertainment in the absence of scripted TV and movies? I'll read some books. Books? One word. There you have it. (laughs) Season 44 of (laughs) C-SPAN. Watching my kids not read. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Norm, Bill, and Congressman Lou. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post daily video content breaking down legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether they're for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Hendrickson. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.